A Dog's Life is supported by RelaxoPet. It's simply animal relaxing. Being left alone, travelling, fireworks, thunder, trips to the vet, or just a change in any environment can unsettle a pet. This tune sounds very relaxing, yet beneath this meditative melody are levels of frequencies that are only audible to your dog. When I tried out RelaxoPet with my excitable miniature bull terrier Prudence, I simply couldn't believe how quickly she settled and actually seemed more deeply relaxed. Her behaviour in general has actually dropped several gears <laughs> and she is more confident and calm in herself, so I use it every day. Developed in Germany, RelaxoPet emanates cleverly configured frequencies that tune into your dog's subconscious to retrain his thought processes into becoming calm. Tested in collaboration with vets, breeders, pet parents in a huge variety of stressful situations, it boasts a uniquely calibrated speaker system that just plugs in and plays. Along with the RelaxoPet sound system, you can develop a calmer dog with other RelaxoPet products like the super scent safe multi-purpose play ring and the soothing cool bandana. Why not check out their full product range and even order yours today from PetTradeInnovations.com. That's PetTradeInnovations.com. I'm Anna Webb. Welcome to A Dog's Life. Hey, Mr. Biggs, you're very lucky because you've missed having a flea treatment today. Although Gremlin has had a flea treatment as a sign of fleas, and it is important to treat if you see a flea. We're going to jump on Zoom now to talk to Andrew Prentice, who is an environmental advisor and works for a voluntary organization called Vets Sustain, about the overuse of flea treatments and the impact they could be having on our environment. Hello, Andrew. Hello. <laughs> How are you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm fine, thank you. How lovely it is to hear your, your lovely voice on the, on the phone again today. Oh, that's so sweet. Well, it's been a while. Um, the last time we were chatting was actually for A Dog's Life's episode number two, and that was before lockdown. Oh, wow. God, it seems like a different world, isn't it? A different world, a different life. Yeah. really does you know I had the pleasure of you know recording in person before but that's yes. uh, become uh, hopefully not a thing of the total past but um at least for now it's all a bit of a distant memory isn't it it's really weird i mean i, I seem to spend my entire life i mean i spent enough of my life in front of a com computer screen before but now you didn't you don't even have the relief of actually physically meeting people and shaking them by the hand and it's all very distant very peculiar it is. And, you know, I think there's some mental health aspects to all of this flying around. And, oh, yeah, uh, absolutely, yes, absolutely. But, um, Andrew, just to introduce yourself, really, I mean, you, you were my vet for many years <laughs> yeah. before you retired, uh, what, a couple of years ago now. That's right. Yeah, well, I spent, I spent the best part of 40 years in veterinary practice, uh, most of it as a pet vet in and around London. Um, and uh, I also had four, year, four years in North Africa at one point, but the majority of my work was with, uh, with small animals, with pets in and around London. 
Yes, and um, you saw my cat Gremlin probably the most yes. with a few nasty abscesses as a result of him being a bit of a scrapper. And uh, <laughs> yeah. I remember I remember the big football-shaped one that you kindly dealt with, and I think yes. it was quite yucky. And what was so enlightening oh, about your practice was that, you, you know, there I was sat in front of you, and he said, now, Anna, we can give you a course of antibiotics, or we could give you just homeopathy which would you prefer and I remember just thinking wow this is such a fantastic option and I remember that day because of the size of the lump on gremlin's posterior yeah. I said do you know what please can I have both <laughs> <laughs> and that really yeah. set you apart didn't it there's quite a, an integrative practice well, that's right. And it's, it's all of that is, is very controversial for some reason in the profession at the moment. I really don't, for the life of me, can't really understand why. I mean, and, and you have to be terribly careful, it seems, even talking about homeopathy these days. I mean, it's always been, it's been around for a long time. It's been around for over 200 years. It's one of the widest used systems of medicine on the planet. Um, and there are huge populations of people worldwide who only use that to keep themselves alive. Um, it's always been part of, of uh, our use here at home, and I thought it was sensible to have it in my practice. And we always had a homeopath at the clinic. They were always busy, and they're not absolutely bonkers. What was happening is they were treating animals, and animals were getting better. Now, you know, what more can you want? It's not for everyone, and it's not for every circumstance. And we certainly used a lot of conventional medicine. And we had some, some of the best specialists in the country um, coming, visiting our, our clinic. So, you know, there's horses for courses. You need to make, make your choices. And there are times when I'm quite clear that actually the effects of homeopathy were, were fantastic. But as I say, it's not for everyone and it's not for every case. No, indeed, indeed. I mean, I'm just nursing Prudence back to health after a bit of a major veterinary emergency. And what I'm loving about homeopathy is that after her heavy duty antibiotics, which we finished, her yeah. heavy duty painkillers, which she needed, you know, I was quite happy to give her this particular tablet that I think yeah. was very strong. Um, it was one I'd not heard of before. Anyway, but they, they finished, you know, and so they should. And then, but then what do you have? You can't just continue on antibiotics but what you can do then you see for me magic is that you can use homeopathy so I'm giving her the homeopathic pain relief with hypericum and antibiotic with hefa self um, just to continue things um, whilst her recovery you know gets better yes yeah and we shouldn't forget of course that most animals like most people have um, very effective immune systems which are working all the time to make things better and get rid of infection and sort out inflammation and do all the, all the sort of the body maintenance stuff. Um, and that's happening all the time. So it's sometimes quite difficult to, to determine what is it that's actually made you or your pet better. And I, I always remember that when I first qualified and we were being inducted into the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons, um, at, the, at the opening speeches, one of the elder members of the profession leaned across it at all and said well don't forget 80% of your patients will get better despite your treatment. I remember this quote now what's what is the quote again Andrew? 80% of your patients will get better despite your treatment. And then there's 10% well, no, the whole, yes, and the, the, so the whole point being, it's not to disrespect what vets are doing at all. It's just to say that nature's on your side. Nature's trying to make things better. 
And in many respects, there's a process there. The critical thing is, as vets, or indeed as doctors, is to try and pick the, the relatively small number of cases that are not going to get better unless you do the right thing. And I guess you don't know. Someone could, you know, um, if you're a GP, for example, come in with a headache. You don't know if it's just a headache or a brain tumour, I guess. Exactly. And that's, that's, of course, that's the art, the science and the art of, of medicine is to try to make that distinction. Andrew, but nowadays you're involved with an organisation called Vets Sustain. That's right. Yes. Well, I, I stopped clinical work um, about two years ago and decided I really wanted to spend most of my time working on environmental projects of one sort or another. And it's taken me into all sorts of different areas, but one of them is Vet Sustain, which is a great, it's a great voluntary organization. Um, it's a group of vets and veterinary nurses who really want to try and help the, the veterinary profession become more sustainable. Um, and, and that means working at all sorts of levels. In the, in the pet area, it's about trying to make our clinics more sustainable. Um, it will take us into areas of which diets for animals are more sustainable, which medicines can we use which won't have adverse effects on the environment. Um, Vet Sustain is also looking at farm uh, farm work, so trying to trying to see how we can um, help the, the agriculture industry become more sustainable, um, and then we have other other working groups trying to make sure that sustainability is brought into the veterinary curriculum, so that all the vet students are taught about sustainability issues right from the very start. That's amazing. Well, I think so. Yes, I, and I, th I think vets, you know, do have. Um, and we are in a sort of slightly unique position in that interface between people and animals um, and therefore with elements of the natural environment and I, I think if we can make sure that that environmental impact is very high on the agenda so when we're when we're giving advice to clients we're always thinking about well what's going to be the most environmentally gentle way out of this situation um, then i think that will be a huge step forward we you know we've we've got a bit of a crisis on our hands and we need to be taking urgent action in every possible direction I mean, when you say we've got a crisis on our hands, um, I noticed an article in the, the Guardian this week, which, yes. you know, the headline is this, pet flea treatments poisoning rivers across England, scientists find. Yes. So is this the type of um, sustainability and the awareness and um, that you were just mentioning? Well, yes, it, it is. I mean, it's, it's one of many issues. I mean, the... the, the this is a paper that's just been published and looking very specifically at residues of parasite medicines um, that have been found in rivers across the UK. And the figures are not great. You know, they, <laughs> I mean, it says here, Andrew, the research found fipronil, yes. which you can explain, is 99% of the samples from 20 rivers. Yes. And the average level of one particular uh, toxic breakdown product of this pesticide was yeah. 38 times above the safety limit in a river. That's absolutely correct. That's absolutely correct. It's and a bit is, scary, isn't it? It's pretty scary, yes. Now, uh, scientists have been worried about this for quite some time. And, you know, we've been, for generations now, we've used pesticides of one sort or another. We've used them in agriculture um, and we've used them on our pets. And in agriculture, 
you know, pesticides are one of the one of the features which has massively increased agricultural yields. You know, because they're not all being eaten by the bugs and, and so on and so forth. But the scientists have realised for a number of years that they don't just kill the bad bugs; they kill the good good bugs too, and particularly the pollinators and the bees of all of the uh, of various species. So, agricultural use of products like fipronil and imidacloprid have been banned for a number of years now right so just to put that in context sure yeah because obviously it's a worry from you know sorry but from a farming perspective it's a worry perhaps more from a human perspective because surely these chemicals you know get absorbed by the plants if we're talking about a wheat field yeah one of the things about them is they have very long persistence in the environment but but just i mean you get we don't want to get lost too much in the in the the product names but the product fipronil it appears in it's included in 66 different pet medications in the uk Wow. Uh, the other one, imidacloprid, it's in another 21 different products. And some of these products with, with the fipronil certainly can just be bought from the pharmacy. You can go into a pet shop, you can go into a pharmacy and you can just buy them over the counter. And what sort of products are these found in then? We're talking here about in the context of flea and tick treatments. So right. the kind of, there are certain market leaders that, that and, and you can buy these products to treat fleas and ticks on your dog or cat um and you don't there's no regulation there's no control over that now what seems to be happening what this research paper that's just been produced seems to be showing is that there are significantly higher levels of these products in rivers just downstream from wastewater treatment sites so sewage sites basically right that what it looks like is these products they're getting into the waterways they're getting into our water whether that's through bathing your pet or through the pet having contact with you and then you washing your clothes or yourself and somebody mm-hmm. on the drain. The, the animal, the dogs that swim, obviously, would be uh, another one. Um, you, what you touch your dog, your cat, um, after applying them and then you wash your hands when yes. it goes down the drain. Um, so all of these, all of these sources, they're getting out into the waterway and they're getting out into the rivers. And they just as they kill the bugs on your dogs and cats they have the potential to kill the bugs in the rivers the streams the lakes and we have a major problem there a major major problem and it's not really being addressed at the moment so what what could be done because you know i know vets generally advise that you give these spot-on treatments monthly i mean is that really necessary andrew it depends on the uh, depends on the individual pet and pets that are persistently infested with parasites of one sort or another and that are causing health problems for the pet or health problems for the people that look after them of course they should be treated but i think one of the areas of uncertainty is how many of these animals have actually got parasites yeah Uh, we are worming cats and dogs you know, multiple times each year. Um, and it's very, very unusual for people to actually test these animals or do, you know, puppies and kittens frequently have worms. We see them all the time. That's normal. And that's yep. part of the natural lifestyle of the worms. But a five-year-old dog? Well, no. I mean, the thing is, what about flea treatments are known as environmental stressor? Yes. And what 
I love about this study is it's proving that these environmental stressors are now really being an environmental stressor to our rivers and our wildlife. Yes. And, you know, if, if you were to test for, say, a worm to find out if your five-year-old dog actually had worms or not, which is something yeah. I do, actually. And funnily enough, Prudence, who is five, has just had a worm count test. And that included for lungworm, right, Andrew? Yes. And all negative, no worms. So why would I then give her a worm treatment, some of which are spot-ons, aren't they, Andrew, that yes. I assume are going in the rivers as well? Uh, well, yes, they are. I mean, uh, broadly speaking, there's two sides. There are two types. There are either the products you put on the outside of your pet, on so the spot-ons, you call them, and then there's an increasing number of products which you give as pills, and then they swallow them. Now, even the ones you give as pills, there will be some of that will come out in your dog or cat's poo. Mm. And hopefully you pick up your dog poo and you stick it in a bag and chuck it in the bin and you empty your cat's litter tray and chuck that in the bin. And where does it end up? It ends up in landfill. And eventually from landfill, there is a risk that those products are going to leach out again into the, in, into the water table and get out into the, um, uh, into the general environment. So I, th I think the, we now, this, this paper is very good evidence that these products are getting into the environment and because there's so little if any used in agriculture we can be pretty certain it's coming from pets okay what right. we don't know fully is just how bad the consequences might be and more work needs to be done on that but i think the plea to pet owners and indeed to the revenue professionals and to the pharmaceutical industry is stop pushing routine blanket treatment of every animal every month throughout its entire life just stop doing that and start developing testing protocols so that actually we can risk assess and so animals that are high risk or animals that have a diagnosis of a parasite problem of course you treat them but the ones who are squeaky clean they have no parasites they have no health issues why on earth would you put these products on them we know they're getting into the environment. We know they will be killing invertebrates in the environment. So unless we have to use them, just stop. Yes. And also education, perhaps, that isn't it that, say, your cat has fleas? Well, the cat will only have 10% of the fleas on him or her. Mm -hmm. The other 90% of the fleas will be in your sofa, in your curtains, yeah. um, yes. in your cat's bed, in, yeah. under the floorboards, you know, yeah. basically in your environment. So a lot of flea management comes from regularly hoovering, finding a, a, a pesticide-free spray, because there, there is one, actually. Um, mm -hmm. It's made in North Wales, funnily enough. You must know the one, Andrew. It's made yes. by, by media. It's called Flee, F-L-E-E. -E, and that is silicone-based. Um, so there are no insecticides in it, but it suffocates flea eggs. And, and just be really, really vigilant. My other question to you is, do you think dogs that live with a cat are more prone to getting fleas? Um, it depends about the lifestyle of the cat. Yeah. Um, for quite a lot of my career, I worked in the very centre of London where most of the cats were indoor cats. And I had never seen so few fleas in all my life, in either dogs or cats, because the commonest, the commonest flea you see on dogs is actually what's called the cat flea. 
Yeah, yeah. It's 80%, isn't it, of all the yeah. fleas in the world. The yeah. most robust creature. I think Hippocrates talked about the cat flea. In fact, he did as being one of the most, you know, adapted creatures. And they are, aren't they? I mean, you, it's so yeah. hard to kill a cat flea. They're very, very well adapted to survival. <laughs> to go, and they're very bouncy. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So I don't know. I, I suspect what's going on is that, that the main reservoir of infection is the cats and the cat, where the cats are going out and spending a lot of time outdoors and they're hanging out in, in places where other animals are and they're picking up fleas in the environment outside, then you're more likely to get fleas coming into the, into the indoors. But certainly in, in the center city environment where cats mostly didn't go out because it wasn't safe because of all the traffic on the roads, then um, we saw way fewer fleas on both cats and dogs. Yeah. But, you know, these things are, e flea check, it's really easy to check a pet for fleas. You buy yourself a flea comb. You just spend a few minutes um, each day or a couple of times a week just going through the coat, and just checking. And if they've got fleas, then you do something about it. And if they don't have fleas and you're not getting bit by fleas, don't treat them. Don't feel yeah. you have to. Exactly. I mean, is there any evidence, Andrew, to show that long-term repetitive use of such treatments can damage the immune system of your pet and therefore make the pet unwittingly more prone to fleas? Um, I, I don't know about making them necessarily more prone to fleas, but there certainly have been, some people have been voicing concerns that um, long-term exposure to these products might be having um, uh, negative effects on P on the owner's health and on the animal's health as well. Um, yeah, I've read a study actually, interestingly, of course, that fipronil, you know, when you put these spot-ons on, yes. there's a, a massive odour, isn't it? And I must say, yeah. my cat, Gremlin, who does get the occasional flea treatment because he is an outdoor cat. Yeah, you know, he, he can't bear it, you know. It's like, oh no, so I have to trick him into it. If he saw the, the sachet coming towards him or whatever, he'd he do a runner, you know. But you know, it's, it's these volatile organic compounds that yeah. evaporate into the atmosphere, which then everyone inhales. Yes, that's, that's right, yeah. And, and, and amongst some of the, um, the spot-on products that uh, are on the market. We certainly had um, some patients who were clearly unwell for a couple of days after putting the product on. The owners would report it, they'd come back and say, actually, you know what, he really wasn't great. I don't think I want to use that product again. He was really under the weather for two or three days after the product. Um, so you know, it can happen in some animals. In, in, in most, of course, you don't, don't see any, any adverse effects, but, it can make the, they can make the animals feel ill. And there is, there's been a bit of a question mark about vets' exposure to all these products because, of course, we work in clinics which are surrounded by this stuff. We've got cupboards full of these things. And, and the, I think there's been a question as to whether, um, you know, there's a huge mental health issue within the veterinary profession. And I think it has been asked as to whether all this chronic exposure to insecticides and pesticides might possibly be an element in that. But that's, it's unknown. And I, Gosh, I don't, mm. well, that's an interesting angle. Is, Can yeah. I just po postulate something to you, Andrew? So I'm, I'm dying to mention this on a podcast. What, what I do, um, okay, so we've had a little flea problem this last week. 
Um, so what I do, you know, I use diametitious earth, yes. um, which I know organic farmers use instead yeah. of insecticides and pesticides, yeah. which I just sprinkle it down the back of my sofa, you know, chuck it in a few floorboard holes, uh, that sort of thing around the dog and cat's beds, not to mention, of course, liberally splashing it all over my garden. Do you think that's an option for some people? Well, it's been around a long time <laughs> yeah. as, a, as, a, as a method for controlling the, the flea population. Um, I think the short answer is it probably won't have the as, as dramatic and rapid effect as things like fipronil. But you know what? It's a hell of a lot safer. And cheaper. <laughs> and cheaper. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I, I think we need to go back to doing some more trials and studies on, on products like that, because if they work, that's way safer. Mm, it's like a flea powder. You know, I use it like a flea powder. You have to be careful yeah. your dog doesn't inhale it, but, you know, and do it outside and, and things like that. But yes. it, it, it effectively, it's, it's a flea powder, but totally natural. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And, and that's, you know, we need, we need to uh, start all over again looking at products like that. You know, when we look at the, the populations of insects, in our wild areas are in complete free fall. You know, the, the insect populations, the invertebrate populations in some areas dropping by 75% over the last generation or two. You know, this is, this is unsustainable. So yeah. um, this is just one of many, many areas where we need to be taking really radical action. And I think the exciting thing is that actually the more, the more you look into all these kind of issues, environmental issues, the more you realize that actually the vast majority of scientists and researchers and engineers and in, in not just in the medical field, but in, in the engineering field and across the board, everybody is working flat out to try and fix our environmental problem. Well, it's good to hear, you know, isn't it? I... It is. And we've got a long way to catch up. And unfortunately, there are a few loonies out there who are saying, oh, you know, it's, we don't have an environmental crisis. This is just natural. It's not. Right? The scientific community is united on this one. We have a major problem. We have to do something about it. And we can do something about it. But it does require us reconsidering and changing our behavior on all sorts of issues. And pesticides is just one of them. So would you say that the new mantra in practice should be test, then treat? Yes, test before treatment. Could that also work, you know, with annual boosters, for example, and do a test called a titer test, again, to minimise chemicals, again, you know, chemicals proliferating through dog's urine, stools, as well as obviously chemicals in your dog? Yes, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, I mean, test before treat applies to vaccinations as well not to every vaccination but for dogs um distemper hepatitis parvovirus you know three of the most important infectious diseases we can very accurately test um a dog to see whether or not they have antibodies and if they do you don't need to vaccinate oh, i know you did prudence's titer test it's not that widespread but it's easily available i would encourage every dog owner to be asking their vets ask them, can we do a titer test? Can we do a vaccine test before we give the vaccine? Um, I would say also that some of the other vaccines that are routinely given for dogs, for leptospirosis, for example, or kennel cough, there are no effective blood tests for those. 
Um, but I think there's an argument for risk assessment. You know, how likely is your dog to come into contact with those things? And then you decide on that on the, on the basis. And there's, you know, there's the argument, though, you know, kennel cough is a virus, just like the common cold. And in a way, dogs need to build their immunity up just like people. And once they've had a particular strain of kennel cough, they won't get that strain again. But because it's a virus, it changes all the time. But again, if your dog has a robust immune system, it should be able to cope with, you know, the odd sniffle, um, even not get it at all, right? Uh, yes, yes. I mean, the, the kennel cough, there is a, a virus element and there is also a bacterial element. Um, it doesn't, it is a contagious respiratory disease, but most dogs don't get kennel cough. You know, there are occasional epidemics of it, but it's, it's, it's not huge. I think it's important to also look at the, at the health of the dog in question. Mm. Because there are some dogs for whom it will be a major problem to get a kennel cough. Some of the some of the little squash-nosed dogs who have difficulty breathing anyway, and then you give them a dose of, of kennel cough, you know, that can get to the point of being life-threatening. So you then it's a different discussion to have about whether you vaccinate that dog or whether you vaccinate another dog that's fit as a fiddle and and has a great physiology really good respiratory function you know it's all about risk assessment not every animal is the same and treating obviously every dog as an individual yes and i think you know in this country we have the the luxury largely of being of being able to do that and so we should try and um, you know do that wherever we can they are individuals their circumstances are different and the treatment plans should be different Indeed. And hashtag test and treat or test yes. before you treat. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Test, test before treatment. Yes. And you, um, cats is more complicated with vaccines um, and things like cat flu, which is one of the most important things to protect them from. Um, there aren't yet any reliable blood tests. For that. Yeah. It's a shame on that. Um, I wonder why that's taking so long. Uh, well, Yes, it, it's it's complicated. They've been trying for a long time. I think one of the things that is that the strains, the strains of cat flu change over time. Um, uh, yeah, a difficult. It's, it's difficult to get um, mm. consistent and effective vaccination. Right. Right, right. Gosh, well, you know, it's all great food for thought, Andrew. And um, yeah. thank you so much for joining A Dog's Life again today. And if people have missed your episode, uh, that was episode two of A Dog's Life, please listen to that as well. Um, mm -hmm. It got quite controversial at times, didn't it, Andrew? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that needs to happen. Sorry about that. Oh, I love it. Um, <laughs> well, please say you'll come back. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I'd be, be happy to. Happy to. And make it as contentious as you like as well. You know, I think, I think it's important that we talk about these things and, uh, you know, as, as much as we can. People need to be as well informed as they can. And if you have doubts, just ask your vet. And the more people who are asking difficult questions, the more we have to come up with appropriate answers. Yes, yes. And yeah, lobby for change. Oh, I love this. Thank you very much, Andrew, and hope to speak to you soon. Welcome. Speak to you soon, yes. That's our show, Mr. Binks. What did you think? Yes, I thought you'd be pleased to hear that you don't need a spot-on treatment every month. I hope you all enjoyed it too. If you did, please subscribe on your favourite podcast app because we're on all of them. Thanks also to Mike Hansen, my producer. You can find out more about them at Pod People UK. For the latest on me, 
I'm at Anna Webb Dogs. And of course, thank you very much to Andrew Prentice. You can find out more about Andrew at The Environmental Warrior or at Vets underscore Sustain. All his details are in the show notes. Thanks also to our wonderful sponsors, Relaxo Pet and Pet Trade Innovations. What's that, Mr. Binks? Yes, you're right. We will be back in your feed next Sunday with another episode of A Dog's Life with Anna Webb. Why don't you subscribe now and you'll never miss another show. Bye for now. Pod people.